Briggs, welcome to The Dividing Line. We're going to start off with open phones today at 877-753-3341, 877-753-3341. I would have posted that on Twitter, um, but I was on a conference call about the Israel trip, and uh, we are moving forward. Um, Obviously, there's going to be some stuff we're going to have to deal with, uh, you know, just because the world is weird right now. But still still going to be happening, and um, lots of time for teaching, and uh, could be in Ephesus and all the rest of this, you know, Athens and Ephesus and all the stuff that we um, were planning on doing. Um <laughs> I'm not sure how you social distance while doing that. I, you know what? I hate that phrase. That that phrase just. I I just uh, I can't wait till never having to say it ever 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 again. If there ever is a time when you don't have to say it ever ever again, I I'm not 100 percent certain that that will ever be the reality. Um, but anyhow, so that's what I was doing. That's why I didn't get out there. Sorry about that. So that will mean that Rich will be rather busy here for a few moments. We already have, uh, we're only going to take four calls. Um, so last time that took us 45 minutes or more. Uh, but 877-753-3341 is the phone number. And then we've got a couple other things to get to to finish off the week. And, of course, while we're waiting uh, for the calls to come up, um, <laughs> We have, uh, I can't do that, so I'm going to have to turn this off here. Uh, we have the interesting things going on today, including, including the, uh, the President of the United States uh, saying that churches must open on Sunday and that he will override governors. Now, obviously, I don't think he can do that. I don't know. It would lead to all sorts, there's going to be all sorts of that's what everybody's going to be talking about for quite some time. But everyone is sort of sitting around going, okay, so we heard all the Romans 13 stuff, so what, what do you guys do now? <laughs> you just go, the president said, so we've got to do it, even if we don't want to do it. But the president said, because they're Romans 13. I don't think that's probably going to happen that way, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, but okay. <laughs> Oh, the world we live in. Uh, if this was a variety-type show or a news-type show or something, man, it would be so easy to have material every single day. It would just be, it would just be hilarious. It really, really would be. Um, so I'm not sure what's going on with the with calls here. Um, I have some that, are, that look like they're ready to go, but for some reason the first line that I would normally go to isn't. Um, available, and Ridge isn't listening to me, so um, I don't know. Okay, all right, so he finally heard me. Okay, so let's um, go to someone here. <laughs> let's talk to uh, Dominic in New Jersey. Hi, Dominic. Hey, how you doing? Good. Great. Um, I was just wondering if you had any uh, any general advice when it comes to witnessing the Muslims. You know, like, if I run into one on campus or something, I don't know, like, what the starting point should be or what in, what in your experience is, like, any general advice you have. Well, a lot of that has to do, uh, of course, uh, with with what kind of a Muslim you're talking to. I mean, uh, there are um, 
a tremendous number of nominal Muslims that you will encounter. Uh, they are Muslim in name only. Uh, sort of a dividing line, honestly, will be whether they do the prayers or not. If they, um, and you can't necessarily tell that, but if you're getting into a conversation and it comes up, well, you know, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, uh, you know, I don't think that there, there's anything offensive about asking, what? That's interesting. So you guys have, uh, you, you folks have uh, five daily prayers. Do you, uh, do you do those prayers regularly or, 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 or just what? And that'll give you an idea if, if you're talking about an observant Muslim, a person who actually uh, is practicing the religion, or you're talking about a cultural Muslim. They're, they come from a Muslim nation. That still means that they'll have aspects of Islamic theology mixed in with their thinking, but um, if they're not actually uh, practicing, obviously they may have far more secular ideas than you would expect them to have, and hence there might be some topics you don't even want to don't want to get into uh, because they wouldn't really be relevant because they're not practicing Muslims. Now, so leaving the non-practicing Muslims aside, then once you're talking to a practicing Muslim, you're uh, obviously what you have to do is how much time do I have? Is this a conversation that might be able to continue in the future? Are you sitting on a bus uh, and you may never see this person again? Is this person someone you might see again on campus? Um, you have to make you have to do some thinking, you know, as to is this a situation where I'm going to open a door for further conversation or is this I've got to assume this is the last shot I've got. Um, and so that's going to change, obviously, how you how you approach a situation. Obviously, it's it's um, more useful to be able to have further conversations down the road, to be able to give and take, learn about someone, communicate with someone. If you're talking about a one-time encounter, like uh, uh, when I was in London a number of months ago, back when you could still do things like this, uh, we were witnessing to people coming out of the train station. And so um, I'm probably not going to talk to this this person again. And so you want to get into something meaty that they can take away with them, something that they maybe never heard of before. challenge them to be looking at the text of Scripture, to try to get them to read one of the Gospels. It doesn't have to be John, by the way. They're so used to hearing that that you might you might actually be more successful getting to read Mark or Luke or Matthew or whatever, um, any of the Gospels. If you can, if you can get them to read Scripture. Um, so uh, you want to focus upon the main things. You want to focus mm-hmm. upon the fact that even though they've been told about Jesus, the Jesus that they've heard is not the Jesus of Scripture. You want to try to get them exposed to that real Jesus over against the Jesus that is presented to them in Islam. Um, and if the sub if the subjects of uh, salvation come up, then obviously you want to be prepared to deal with issues along the lines of uh, uh, the cross, the resurrection. Uh, the the specific areas where Christians and Muslims have specific differences. Um, so yeah, that obviously there's a bunch of things right there that you're you want to th- be thinking through uh, so that you can have a, a meaningful approach. And if it is someone, if it is a neighbor or something like that, then obviously uh, establishing some kind of relationship that will allow you to um, 
you know, sit down with a uh, with your scriptures and uh, get to know the person. That, that's really, really, really important because uh, an observant Muslim has been taught certain things about what we allegedly believe that we don't believe. But they're going to be, if it's just a one-time encounter, they're going to be more likely to uh, question what you're saying. But if they get to know who you are, they get to know what your your life is like and, and your commitment to Christ, so on and so forth, that can open up a whole lot of wonderful doors. Um, so, yeah, a bunch of stuff right there just to, to figure out where you, where you want to start at. You obviously right. want to get to who the real Jesus is, uh, but probably somewhere along the lines, you're also going to have to be dealing with the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, the consistency of the Christian Scriptures, and the fundamental reality that the Quran, the author of the Quran, did not understand what what was in the Christian scriptures or what the Christian scriptures teach. That's going to come up as well. Uh, and so, fundamental issues concerning uh, the nature of scripture and its reliability are always in the forefront in a discussion with uh, with Muslims, even if they're not observant Muslims. That they still are going to have that as a part of their thinking. Okay, so you're like generally a good starting point is like who Jesus is and scripture as well. Uh well, oh definitely, definitely, but then yeah. that's going to challenge um the issues relating to the canon, the transmission of the text of scripture, all these things because mm-hmm. if you want to say who is Jesus according to scripture, well then that's going to raise the issue of well what is scripture and you're dealing with uh, two different sets of scriptures, so that's that's an inevitable, uh, unavoidable aspect of of that particular discussion. And some people try to get around that by by using the Quran as the mechanism of doing that. I I do not suggest that at all. I, I think the more exposure you can give them to the truly inspired Word of God, the the better. Okay. Okay. I agree. Okay, Thank hey, you. thanks, Dominic. I hope you're doing over the, doing all right over there in New Jersey. That uh, is one of the one of the hot spots uh, uh, these days. So uh, hope you hope you're doing well. All right, thanks. You as well. All right, God bless. Bye bye. See you. All right, that's our first of three. We're just going to take the four calls, and I'm just going to try to go with uh, whoever's been on hold longest. So uh, let's talk to Brandon. Hi, Brandon. Hey, James. How you doing? Doing good. Uh, you can mark me as another one who, uh, you know, started, heard of King James Onlyism, <clears throat> went to go research it, found you on Wretched Radio, and then found Jeff, found R.C. Sproul, and a year later I'm a five-point Calvinist <laughs> from an Assemblies of God. So, uh, <laughs> oh, okay, all right. <laughs> it was a conservative Assemblies of God, you know, but no no tongues, but either way. Um, my question is, I uh, was talking to someone about total inability, and they used Acts 10 as, evidence that man isn't uh, totally unable to, or totally not able to uh, respond to the gospel, or that he was, basically their point was that he was seeking God. It was, uh, he's supposed to be not able to do it, but he was a devout man who feared God, gave alms generously, and prayed continually. Right. So they were saying he was seeking God, so if total inability was true, then how was Cornelius seeking God? I thought, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm relatively new to the, to, you know, five points, but I, uh, can regeneration maybe happen beforehand, God changes heart, or is that type of giving alms, praying, not actually seeking God in the terms of 
you what total inability would say. Well, uh, remember, uh, total inability does not mean, uh, in fact, uh, that man uh, does not respond to God. He, man does. Man responds to God in many different ways. Um, it is an inability to submit oneself uh, to God in repentance and faith, out uh, apart from regeneration, that is at issue. There is obvious. It's a it's a normal straw man to represent what we're saying as if mankind uh, is just senseless and is just stone stone dead and and does not respond to anything. You have people like atheists who respond to the gospel with tremendous hatred. I mean, just watch the mm-hmm. watch the debate from last year in, in Salt Lake City. You get a real yeah. good idea of how that works. Um, religion, <laughs> uh, yeah, false false religion is a um, a mechanism of responding by suppressing the knowledge of God, and so uh, there can be very religious. Uh, reactions. Now, what you're looking at here is you have a, descrip- a, a dis- description of him as a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave, gave many alms to Jewish people and prayed to God continually. So you have someone here who is called a God-fearer. And uh-huh. there's a fair amount of uh, discussion in New Testament studies concerning the role of the God-fearers in the book of Acts, and how once the gospel goes outside of the land of Israel and starts going into the Greek uh, world, you have uh, these God-fearers being a, one of the major uh, audiences that Paul focuses upon in his missions work, because they seem to be individuals where there is what you might call good ground. I mean, there is, they, these are individuals okay. who have been uh, attracted by monotheism, uh, they they recognize the foolishness of polytheism, and so they're not uh, worshiping the many gods, etc., etc., etc. The the idea that uh, people have here is that if you believe in total depravity, then that means that uh, every person is as evil as they possibly could be. And that's simply not the case. There's something called common grace. Yeah. There is something, uh, the, the, the simple reality is uh, that there's another example a little bit later on in Acts of Lydia, um, who, while godly, while gathering for prayer, that there weren't enough Jews to have an actual synagogue, but they're gathering at the, at the river for prayer. Still, what does the scripture say God has to do? He has to open her heart to hear the message. And so you can have people who give alms, you can have people who, who pray and do all sorts of things, but the issue is when the message of the gospel itself is delivered, uh, and this is a message that requires a, a, a turning and an acceptance of the, the risen Savior, um, what, did, what was Jesus' teaching concerning that subject? Even when he was standing in front of people who could see him, uh, as clearly as as day, still he said, "No one can come to me unless the Father, unless it's granted by the Father." And yeah. so, so it's it's simply a, a, what what you have is is people who are wanting to try to get around the clear testimony of Scripture on that particular subject by implicit argumentation that, well, um, Cornelius, I mean, he fears yeah. God, and so that must mean that he was regenerate, or something along these lines. Now, this does get you into another area, and, and that is people have disputation, argumentation, 
about the time uh, the time frame that exists between regeneration and faith. Uh, for the vast majority of people, there there isn't much of a of a time um, expression there. In other words, they 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 come together. Um, but yeah. there are people like Charles Haddon Spurgeon who gave testimony that there was a period of time in their life when they were uh, greatly troubled by their sin and uh, yet did not come to faith in Christ uh, for a matter of weeks or months, and that this was a very trying time for them and a very difficult time for them. And this raises questions concerning, well, can we identify the exact point of location of a person's regeneration and what's the nature of that and so on and so forth? And there are arguments uh, about that. Uh, One thing that has to be affirmed is any person who's been regenerated um, uh, will believe and and repent, um, unlike what certain people in the early church taught where you could actually be regenerated and then and then eventually lost um, the the that would yeah. be a that would be a, a problematic understanding um, but uh, so yeah if someone wants to look at Acts chapter 10 and go well I'm going to imply from the description of Cornelius the following things um, well if he was yeah. all that good why not why even why even have to worry about going through all the effort you did to send Peter uh to to pro- proclaim the gospel to him he still needed to believe there still needed to be delivery yeah. of that of that message and um so it's it's a matter of taking the whole the whole testimony of scripture and not taking one section and going well I'm going to imply uh that it means this and therefore I'm no longer going to believe the plain statements of scripture that says no one's able to come to me unless the father sent me draws him and 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 texts like that. So allowing all of Scripture to speak is is always the answer uh, to how we we come to our conclusions. Okay. Yeah. So so just a um, I guess what he's taking is a a positive disposition, I guess, or a, a non-negative disposition, and saying, oh well, that's seeking, but there's a difference between the seeking and just having a well kind of friendly right uh, Well, I would say towards God. Look, look, I would say that if Cornelius looked back, he would see the grace of God involved in, in his life all along. That's not the same yeah. thing as saying, well, as soon as God's grace starts working in a person's life, that means they have to be regenerate. Um, God can work in someone's life and protect them from making wildly um, dangerous decisions that, that would scar them in a way that God would not want them to be scarred so that he can use them in the kingdom in a, per, in a, in a particular way. So in other words, he, he may, God may not choose to bring someone uh, to a knowledge of their own, of, of who Christ is, bring them to regeneration until their early 20s, and yet by grace protect them in their mid-teens from doing things yeah. that would then uh, uh, result in situations where they wouldn't be able to be used the way that God wants to use them. Uh, so, for example, Paul, God wants to use Paul, but... Uh, could God's grace have kept Paul from doing something three months before his his encounter on the Damascus Road that would have uh, fundamentally uh, diminished his ability to function the way that God wanted him to function later in life? Obviously. So uh, once you yeah. start trying to, to second-guess God's sovereignty, it, it, it never works out really well for anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> All right, well, thank you for that answer. Thank you, uh, 
for all you do, and God bless, guys. All right. Thanks, Brandon. God bless. Bye-bye. <laughs> Alrighty, so line one, and let's talk to Connor. Hi, Connor. Hey, Dr. White. You're in the uh, People's Republic of Cal- California. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not a big fan of this state, to be honest with you, but uh, hopefully I can get out of here. Yeah, you're well, you're stuck days. now. I understand they've blocked all the entr- all the exits, so you, <laughs> so you have to you have to yeah, pay well, all I mean, the extra I taxes. To Utah. Um, yeah, but, there you go. Yeah, I don't want to stay here. <laughs> <laughs> what can we do for you? Um, so I I used to be a Mormon myself. When I was 14, I joined the Mormon church. And then by the time I was almost 15, I had actually left the Mormon church. So I was pretty quick in that. Yes. Just because of the certain doctrines that they have, such as exaltation, such as, you know, the polytheism and all that kind of stuff. that they don't teach you until you're about 18. Right. When I found that out on my own, I was very confused, and then I came upon Apologia, um, and your guys is just, you know, preaching over at the Mormon temples and stuff. Right. I started learning about it, but now that I'm a, a five-point Calvinist, uh, <laughs> um, thanks to you guys, I don't know exactly how to be able to preach to Mormons in a way that they understand both the Calvinist point of view and then the mainstream Christian point of view at the exact same time. <laughs> well, does that make sense? Like, I, I don't know how to be able to, to to preach that to them so they are understanding my terminology versus mainstream Christian terminology. Right, right. Yeah. Well, um, it's interesting uh, the the tracks that we pass out uh, in that we have passed out in the past in Mesa and up in Salt Lake City. A couple of them we specifically wrote um, to scratch that itch to hit that target to um uh to really cause that uh, a a mormon to stop and go what you know for example we have a track called no man is able um and mm-hmm. you know especially given the mormon understanding of the nature of man and his abilities and the fact that he's the same species as god and so on and so forth um that really catches their attention. What, what do you mean no man is able? No man is able to do what? And immediately you're into uh, a presentation. And some, not many, but some did fairly early on go, wow, you, you, that's not what other Christians have told me. You, you guys seem a little bit uh, different. And they're, now you've got the opportunity of saying, well, you know, there's a thing called the Reformation and uh, so on and so forth. So you can, you can jump into it from, uh, from there. But yeah, that is one of the challenges that we we have is that a a Mormon who has had conversation and encounter with uh, mainstream evangelical Christians will tend to reinterpret our words in a way that we don't intend them to be interpreted. So you you end up sort of with double linguistic challenges because the Mormon's going to use their own terminology, their own definitions of words. It's going to be very, very different than the Christian definition. And then you have the second layer that they're going to assume uh, that you're saying the things that have been said to them by someone they met on the sidewalk or something along those lines. So there is a a necessary uh, level of thought that goes into the utilization of language you might want to watch, you probably have watched it, but um, last October, 
uh, Jeff and Luke and I had the opportunity of talking to a couple who were leaving the LDS church, and we were answering some of those final questions that uh, that they had, and you'll see that both of us are putting out an extra effort to listen to what we were. It, it's I'm not sure how Jeff would describe it, but for me, I'm sort of running through my mind what I'm saying before I say it, and then listening to it to see if any of the terminology that I'm using could possibly get interpreted the wrong way. And in fact, there was one point where I think Jeff was speaking, and I could tell that something he had said had been picked up by one of the two people through the filter uh, in a way that was not what he had intended. And you'll see me jump in and correct it before he gets too much farther down the road, not correcting him, but correcting the misapprehension. Um, because I could, I could see, since I wasn't talking, that I could be observing, um, I could see that something had triggered a, a level of confusion just simply because of the, of the translation issues that we all always have to deal with. So, yeah, obviously, it, it, that, that's an extra level of work to be done, but at the same time, there's almost nothing that will get you past a lot of the uh, standard objections than to go straight into saying uh, or presenting uh, a, a Reformed understanding of the gospel, because the, the Mormon is rarely prepared for that. They've, they've heard the other stuff. They've got their pat answers. But uh, predestination election, what? What are you talking about? Uh, so that can actually get you, get you straight through to the, uh, the important stuff fairly quickly. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I had a friend that went on a mission over in Chicago, and uh, he, I guess they're now allowed to use Instagram. So he and his companion, they messaged me, and they were asking about what Reformed Baptist means. I was trying to explain it to him, and he gave me a whole LDS essay about uh, addressing the issues of Calvinism. Uh-huh. About 900 pages. <laughs> 900 pages? It was 900 pages written by uh, an LDS guy, and then one of the chapters was uh, refuting predestination, irresistible grace, all that kind of stuff. And they were only using the Bible, not the Book of Mormon or anything, just trying to disprove um, our claim. And uh, I've never actually debated a Mormon on predestination until that day. Right. And then actually today I'm meeting with Mormon missionaries as well. Um, I want to talk to them about it too because they have questions. But it's really it's interesting messing with that terminology versus like mainstream Christianity and then the reformed understanding of the gospel right. to a Mormon that has such a such a different gospel than than we do. Right. So it's really difficult at times. Oh no, there's it, it, it it's difficult but necessary and it's not it's not difficult it's not difficult because the the belief is difficult. It's difficult because uh, Mormonism has such a man-centered understanding. Mormonism does not have a God in the sense that biblical Christianity does. I mean, I mean, think about it. Fundamental to the understanding of Reformed theology is the absolute holiness of God, and part of holiness means absolute otherness. But the central, mm-hmm. the central teaching of Mormonism is he's not other. He is the same species as we are. It's a, it's a continuum. It's a continuum of existence. We are. 
we are of the same same order of being, just at different levels of exaltation. And so, yeah, there's a fundamental uh, problem there uh, that has to be communicated, and it's uh, it's definitely uh, very very challenging. So, uh, I hope you have a good time with the missionaries. Hopefully, they don't have to wear masks. That makes it. I don't know about you. I this whole mask thing right now is driving me insane because I can't understand what anybody is saying who's wearing one. So, so you could end up yeah, really, exactly. really struggling with the communication if the, if they're wearing masks. Uh, that'd be that'd be rough. Before you but. let him go, real quick, um, Connor, on our website at the top, you're going to see a banner ad for the Christian Message. And if you're meeting with missionaries today or soon, if you click in there while you can't get the tract in that you know period of time, there's a PDF of the content of it. So you can read what it mm-hmm. says and have something in presentation form for you to be able to have at your disposal. Oh, that's fantastic. I'll definitely check that out because I'm, I talk to more missionaries about every week um, about a variety of topics. I'm only 16, so I, I struggle with doing that at times, being able to go places. But uh, recently I've had a lot of missionaries reach out to me just randomly because they're at home. Yeah. Um, oh, so I've been doing a lot. Yeah, more they're they're probably bored. <laughs> they're probably bored too. Yeah, uh, exactly. They they <laughs> called me yesterday. They're like, "Hey, Connor, how are you doing? Can I share a message with you from the Book of Mormon?" I'm like, "Sure." And they start going to like Moroni or something like that. Uh, and I tell them, "I'm like, well, by the way, I'm not a member. I'm actually a, an ex-member." And then they're like, "Oh, interesting." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then I bet. we start that whole topic and stuff. And I'm like, "Yeah, it's gonna be fun." <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for calling, Connor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. All right. One more call here. I I should have mentioned, uh, Connor, if you're still listening, real important, I hope you've got a good church to go to. Uh, I know the churches, most churches in California aren't meeting, even though, hey, the president told everybody to do it next week. So I think now's the time to obey Romans 13. <laughs> but uh, it, 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 especially at your age, you need, um, you need good, uh, solid elders, um, they're actual elders, biblical elders, not not the elders of the LDS Church elders. Uh, highly recommend that to you. One more call. Let's uh, talk to Willis. Hi, Willis. Hello. How are you, Doctor White? Doing good. I could um, not tell. I could not tell you're from West Virginia at all. I could. Oh. Not, I could not tell that. It, no, I would never ever would have guessed it. Uh, well, I was raised in Kentucky, so maybe that's part of it. <laughs> well, it's um, all over on the other side of the Mississippi, anyways, right? Yeah, I wanted to thank you. Uh, I wanted to thank you and Brother Rich first of all for all you've done. And did Connor just say he was sixteen? He, I, that, that's. Uh, I didn't have a voice like that at sixteen, but yes, he said he's sixteen. Well, I mean, I was amazed at his when he said that. And then here's a sixteen-year-old that uh, he's seems to be very grounded in the scripture and I, at 16 years old I was barely had a baby suit it seemed like <laughs> but the question I have for you um this morning I was reading from your from your book the God who justifies mm-hmm. I know brandy points um there and you was mentioning Ephesians 2 3 and Paul when he was addressing the church at Ephesus about uh and he talked to believers and he said that you know that, you know, we were children of wrath, you know, even as others, and he was talking about by nature. Well, you know, in Romans 9, you know, he was talking, Paul was talking about how, you know, the elect were taken out of the same clump of clay that the non-elect were. So so the elect were never, you know, God's, the vessels of wrath. So what exactly would Paul have meant by 
by the by the elect being by nature children of wrath. Because obviously, if we're not in if we're not in in Christ, you know, we're in Adam. So in a sense, it seems like we are children of wrath. Mm-hmm. But how can I, how can how can I reconcile this? You see what I'm saying? Because well, yeah, and, John three thirty John three thirty six says that you know that the children of the wrath of God you know abides upon the children of disobedience. So when we were lost, we were under God's wrath in a sense. But yet yes, it also were. says the elect were never His. This was wrath. So I, I can't reconcile this. So well, I'm asking you to reconcile. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I think that. You're, you were very close to it there when you're when you're noting the fact uh, that uh, Romans five is probably the the point of of reconciliation, and that is that there the apostle says that uh, we are in Adam, and that's why there is death. That's why there is the fall. That's why there is wrath. Is that we are in Adam, and. So if we are only in Adam, then we can only receive from Adam what Adam receives, and that would, would include wrath. And so notice it says we were, uh, it uses the, the past tense there, we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So we truly were in Adam, um, and now we truly are in Christ, and others remain only in Adam. That's why there is the distinction between the two. And so what Romans 9 is looking at is the the final outcome, because it talks about how he's expressing his mercy. Well, that mercy is what brings about a person um, uh, receiving regeneration, faith, um, the grace of God, forgiveness, adoption, everything else that comes with that, and hence being um, one of those vessels made by the potter to be in in the in the in the house, not 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 to be used for common use, but for special use. But the reality is that there is a period of time in this life before we experience that gracious act, whereby uh, regeneration takes place, and we are uh, we are sensible of repentance, of faith, of the message of the gospel, and never are we held accountable for the eternal aspect of these things. We, God made us as time-bound creatures. He holds us accountable only for that which can be understood by time-bound creatures. And so there, is going, there are going to be those texts of Scripture that are going to talk about the before and after in our experience. So we were children of wrath— um, we were walking in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. Um, this is this is where we were. Now, graciously, in some people's experience, that was a short period of time. For others, they can testify it was a long period of time. For others, they could say it was um, uh, even in their unregenerate state, God protected them from many things. But others would say, there wasn't anything I was protected from. Um, and so there's every kind of person that is going to have that before and after understanding and perspective. And from the eternal eternal view, either from eternity past or eternity future, we can look back and go, yeah, 
Those were always the ones that God had set his favor upon, and their salvation was certain. But that's from eternity, and that's not a perspective that we currently are able to inhabit or even begin to understand. Um, So when talking about what God's grace has done in our lives and how God's grace has broken in and, and changed us and everything else, from our perspective, this is exactly how we have experienced God's work within us and we confess that just as the rest, we were, we were no different in the sense that we loved all these things just like they love all these things. And that's where our heart was, and that's where our desires were. Because if we say otherwise, then uh, we are really saying that there is something special about us that drew God's love or drew God's mercy or whatever else it might be. Um, The reality is until a person bows the knee uh, to Jesus Christ, they're under the wrath of God. Uh, And since we don't know uh, what God is going to do, we don't know what the eternal decree is, that's the only message that we have to proclaim. We don't have one message, and then we sit back and go, I wonder if that's one of the elect. Uh, I'm going to watch real closely. Then I'll give them some more information. No, that's that we aren't, we aren't called to do that. Uh, that's so, hard Huh? That's hard shellism. Oh, yeah, you bet. That's, that, that's, that's, yeah. See, a lot, a lot of folks don't know what that means. Because uh, like out here in, in this part of the country, no one's ever heard of hard shellism. Um, uh, but There's a few around here. Oh, there are. You bet believe there are. Uh, if anyone's wondering what he's talking about, we're talking about a form of hyper-Calvinism. Uh, and it's um, evangelism amongst those folks involves uh, looking for evidences of regeneration, uh, seeing if someone's uh, elect so that you can then give them the other information. No, we, we don't... Um, we don't do that. Uh, we don't find the apostles doing that, and uh, and so we oppose that. But anyway, so I don't think it's a matter of of having to um, harmonize, as it is just understanding the different per- differing perspectives. Romans nine is giving us that overall eternal perspective from God's perspective as how He sees things, and then uh, in talking to people about uh, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh. Well. Uh, that's that's the redeemed talking to the other redeemed about what we've been redeemed out of, and uh, that's a very time bound uh, time bound uh, understanding. And it's uh, but that's still a, a very real understanding as well. Well, I can honestly say, you know, I you know I'm glad that he called me out of that. Don't get me wrong, but now you have to be real. You have to be honest with yourself and myself too. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my life, but then God come to me and show me what the end result of that life was. Right. And it well, wasn't and the, that I was well, I Willis, wasn't looking for fire protection. Willis, here's here's the real question: Could you enjoy it again? No, no, definitely not. There's the difference. No, 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 no. Yeah, there's there's the <laughs> difference. Right, right, right. There's there's there that there is the uh, first two words, uh, first three words of Ephesians two four. But God. Being rich Amen. in mercy, so that that's the. It's not you. It wasn't Willis that did it. It wasn't James that did it. It was God that did that, and uh, that's why the, the heart has changed. But I want to thank you for taking my call, and I and I'll I'll make a quick confession, and I'll let you go. When you was on the uh, podcast last night with uh, Brother Ramos, yes, uh huh. When he asked you about was you doing debates, and then one of you mentioned maybe you could do a debate against each other. Yes, that was me that said. Uh, White versus Ramos, the Reformed <laughs> Rumble. That was me. <laughs> but that was just because 
I mean, I don't know what you all would debate, maybe other than es- eschatology or something. So. Yeah, that's about. That'd be about it. Yeah, that'd be about. But that it. was me. So, but listen, okay. thanks again for taking my call, right. and thank you and Brother Rich for all that you do. You know, you've you 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 both have blessed me beyond measure, and well, you've good. helped my ministry, and uh, that's the main thing. And that you glorify God, and you brothers have a good day. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call. God bless. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Right, bye bye. All right, Willis from West Virginia. Thanks for the phone calls today, uh, getting us started on the program with uh, with all of that. They're always good, uh, always good calls, and uh, you never know what's going to necessarily be under those uh, those blinking lights. Uh, but uh, it is it is good to see. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, people on Twitter are going. Uh, there, there's. I'm not gonna get into it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get into it. I'm not gonna get into it. I, I, I don't know why Trump does the things that Trump does. Um, I will say this. Let me. <laughs> did y'all, did y'all see the latest? Well, there's been a couple gaffes. I, there, there's probably about seven or eight gaffes per day. If if anybody really added them up, I guess recently Joe Biden said something about. You know, I'm the only one that can really show show, show us how to beat Joe Biden, <laughs> and 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 you're sort of like, you know, there's actually an element of truth to that when you think about it. That's not what he meant to say. Uh, he doesn't know that he meant to say that, um, but there is an element of of truth to that. But but I was listening to his incredibly racist statement that that came out today. That it, you know, if you're confused as whether you're for me or for Trump, then you're not really black. And look. These people think they own the black vote because they do. I mean, 97 percent. They just they just count on it. But did you listen to him as he was speaking? He was he was trying to do a voice just like Hillary Clinton has tried to do the voice. And and Obama did the voice, even though Obama didn't come from that type of a culture. But um, and it was it was just it was so bad and the Babylon, no, no, uh, Eric Metaxas caught it. He, he caught that he was doing it. And so he went right back at him with it, just doing the almost um, Jar Jar Binks level bad um, slaughtering of the English language. And, of course, Jonathan Merritt then responds, that's never funny to make fun of how someone speaks as a Christian. Dun, 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 dun. Totally missing the, the, the fact that Biden had literally... Literally, in the midst of being blatantly racist, had then done it with a, a an affected voice. It was just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. there's going to be, I, I cannot possibly see how that man can run for president from his basement. He's not leaving. It's going to be somebody else. It's going to be that's going to be part of the big stuff. Next month is that next month? Is it June? Is when there is June when they're supposed to have their convention? Who knows? I, I don't know, but I I can't I can't see it happening. I, that he's gonna come out and say, obviously, I've got problems. Uh, I'm 77 years old, and I've got issues, and so we're gonna give it to this person or whatever and you know who he's reminding me of is the guy that was with ross perot as the vice president when he went into the debate and he looks to the camera he goes who am i and why am i here (laughs) and that 
sunk the whole thing it's right done. there. Game over. It's done. Well, that was a different day because I could see I could see old Joe looking in the camera, going, "Who am I, and why am I here?" <laughs> yeah, I, it's the man should be protected by his family. He shouldn't be running for public office, but. There you go. Uh, that's that's what's happening. What a what a day we live in. Anyway, I, I was that 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 happened today, and it's going to be happening pretty much every day uh, for the next number of months, along with everything else. Um, okay, I didn't. I forgot to. Uh, we haven't had any problems. Oh, I reset. Oh, drat. Uh, I've I've been having some computer issues today. I did at least get uh, Logos to come up once. <laughs> that's that's uh, that that was that was really good. Um, but I had this all queued up. Thankfully, I remember uh, the time uh, stamp on it, so that's pretty unusual. What's what's the chances of someone actually remembering uh, an actual timestamp? Um, did you see this when I posted this on Twitter last night? Right, right, right. Um, those of you who are regular viewers of the program, listeners of the program, know that for... I suppose we, we should go back and find out when the first time I mentioned this was, but it's, it's been minimally two months, uh, probably coming up on three months, uh, maybe even a little more than that. When I first started making commentary on Augustine, early church issues, topics like this, um, we have been providing a rather in-depth critique of a doctoral dissertation uh, submitted to Oxford University. I had someone from Oxford uh, contact me on Twitter saying, hey, don't hang that guy on us. We, we, we actually do good work here. Don't, no, please, uh, don't, don't do that. And I'm like, hey, I, I, what, I, I don't have any control over this. This, this is just bad. It's just, it's as bad as, as, as we've documented it to be. Anyway, we have addressed dozens of topics from ancient religions like Gnosticism and Manichaeism, and we've looked at Qumran, and we've, we've read from original sources like the Secret Gospel of John and other materials from Nag Hammadi. We've looked at uh, portions from the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran, which is how it's pronounced, Qumran, yes. And we've, we've dealt with uh, the language used by Clement, the actual Clement, the first century Clement, rather than the third or fourth century version. Um, and we've looked at uh, the Epistle Diognetus. We've, we've, we've really gone in depth on a lot of things. And for a lot of what we did, we were just looking at original sources. We weren't using secondary sources. We're looking at I'm translating what uh, Clement said. I'm translating what uh, was said to Diognetus. Uh, we're, we're looking directly at what Augustine wrote. We're not using secondary sources. And when we did, 
you know, it's it's stuff like um, background uh, summary material on on Manichaeism, uh, standard textbook type stuff that is that is utilized. Uh, we're, we're checking uh, citations like from Mark Edwards on uh, culture and philosophy in the age of Plotinus in regards to Neoplatonism. And, of course, we, we dug out John J. O'Mara uh, on making it look like Augustine thought that being a Christian or Manichaean was a small, just a very small difference when that's nothing that Augustine said and it wasn't what O'Mara was saying either. And so utilize, checking sources, things like that. Um, so last night, someone on Twitter began mentioning that another, uh, yet another video uh, has appeared from Leighton Flowers. And uh, this video, I guess, uh, just rebukes uh, myself. And what's interesting, and I, I will admit, I, I have not even had the time to get into this at all. Um, but evidently, I'm trying to find the... Wow, there are a lot of um, uh, tweets here. Um, but the... Uh, I don't know where it went. Anyway, uh, it was up here. I hate Twitter is a little bit easier than Facebook because whenever you click on Facebook, who knows what's going to come back up again? It's like at least with this, you can sort of scroll and try to find stuff. But um, the um, Jordan B. Cooper, he he goes at Doctor Jordan B. Cooper. So we've, I guess, he called into the program once years and years ago. Because I've seen some YouTube thing or something like that. But Jordan Cooper and Chris Date did a debate recently on the extent of the atonement. I was the reason I rem- remember this is that was the last time I got to use the Admirals Club while traveling anywhere while flying. We we, we managed to get that access right before it's no longer relevant. Isn't that fun? Anyway, um and I was really disappointed because uh, Chris had not bothered to read anything that Jordan Cooper had said, and so they there wasn't any there, there wasn't any debate going on. He just assumed it was you know sort of universal atonement type thing, and that's not where Cooper's coming from. He's got this rather unique Lutheran thing happening, but evidently, according to Pink Noise, Leighton is calling on me and Doctor Jordan B. Cooper to repent even warning of the wrath of God upon them. Uh, and I guess he said even Albert Moeller is on the hit list. Now, I don't, I don't know about that, but I followed, I asked for a link, and that's how I found this particular video. I did not listen to all of it. It's about an hour long, and I didn't have time to do that. But I was sort of looking for something, and I happened upon this little section right here. And so I would like you to hear what Leighton Flowers has to say here. Okay, here, here we go. On the term semi-plagian. In other words, um, if, if you notice, we're, we're the only, especially in my discussions with James White and some of the others, we're the only ones who provide unbiased sources to support what we're saying. Have you noticed this? Go, go listen to all of James White's stuff against Ken Wilson 
And notice he never provides an unbiased source to support the things he's saying. And Wilson literally cites 80 different sources, all of which are unbiased. Now, I, I... I don't even I don't even know how how do you respond to someone? It, it's possible that Leighton Flowers just has listened to very little of what we've said. I mean that's possible. It is possible he hasn't understood major portions of what we have said. Um but the reality is Leighton will go to secondary sources and quote those secondary sources, and he thinks that's doing scholarship. So it's possible he just doesn't understand that what we're doing is we're actually going to original sources, and Augustine cannot be a biased source. <laughs> um, Clement can't be a biased source. Uh, the Epistle Diagnosis can't be a biased source. And when you actually are utilizing the bibliography in Dr. Wilson's dissertation to check his citations, that can't be a biased source either. Or you just said that he used only unbiased sources. Well, okay, so that means this is unbiased. Well, no, of course it's, it's biased. Any secondary source is going to be biased. That's not the point. The point is, when I demonstrated that the utilization of this source in the quotation that we examined was completely bogus, indefensible to attribute what he said about a, a Manichaean, about someone observing a Manichaean hearer and a Christian in the 4th century and attributing that to Augustine, indefensible, utterly indefensible. What does bias have to do with that? It has nothing to do with it at all. So it, it, it just, there just seems to be a level of confusion on Leighton Flowers' part, as to just how you even do scholarship, how, how you even engage in this kind of stuff. But the scary thing is, I think he really believes what he's saying. He really actually believes what he's saying. And that is difficult to even begin to conceive of, uh, given how much has already been presented. But it also tells you there are some people so wedded to their conclusions on this subject that it doesn't matter what you present. It, it doesn't matter how clear it is. It doesn't matter how compelling it is. Uh, they're not going to, they're not going to hear it and they're not going to accept it. They're not going to see how all of these issues are related to one another. And there's nothing you can do about it. That doesn't make what we're doing worthless. Um, I know of believing Christians who have been encouraged to be reading early church fathers. I've had the opportunity of doing more lecturing over the past couple of months on this program as to how to handle patristic sources in a fair and meaningful fashion within the context of Christian apologetics than I've ever had before. Never had a reason to go as in-depth and to exhort all of us no matter what area that we're working in, you may not be re- we may not be responding to provisionists. You may be responding to a Muslim who is misusing early church fathers. Well, you still have to be fair. You can't, in pulling on that rope the other direction, 
become imbalanced over here because when you're done talking to the Muslim, there might be a Mormon over here that you need to talk to. But now you got to pull this direction. And see, you, you shouldn't have to be changing all the time. If you're using the same standards of truthfulness and being accurate, not reading things into the early church fathers, not trying to just go to them and find evidences to substantiate your particular perspectives, then um, you can allow the early church fathers to be the early church fathers, and you can be blessed by them. Uh, it's always exciting to me when I talk to people who've gone, you know, I I had sort of been afraid to look at the early church fathers because I, you know, you, you hear about these people that when they started reading the early church fathers, and now he's a Catholic, or he's an Eastern Orthodox, or he's, he's become an atheist, or whatever. whatever. And it's like, if you, if you expect them to sound like you, in the 21st century, you're going to be freaked out. But if you recognize that they are men speaking from a context and that they're, they're speaking at a point in time in history, then you find out how much history has determined your vocabulary, too. You just didn't know it. I mean, there, there are people in this audience, you're sitting there going, come on, white, I, my, my vocabulary can't have been determined by someone from the 4th century. Because I've, I've not read anybody from the 4th century, so my vocabulary could, couldn't have come from them, right? Wrong. Where did your vocabulary come from? When you become a Christian, you learn to speak Christianese. Whether you know it or not, every time you go to church, you're taking uh, language lessons. You're taking language lessons from the hymns, you're taking language lessons from the prayers, you're taking language lessons from the worship songs, you're taking language lessons as you're sitting around in a small group. You're learning Christianese. Where do you think that terminology came from? Well, the people you're learning from may not know where it came from. They may not be aware of it, but it came from history. There are terms, even when we t- say things like Jesus gave himself for us, there's an entire realm of theology that's informing the meaning of those words. And so we are dependent upon those who've come before us. And they've had a huge influence on us. And the more we, the more we know about them, the more we can filter that, the more we can seek to be biblical in the analysis of that. And here's the tough part. This is what we, we don't pick up from social media. We can learn to appreciate people who actually have different perspectives than our own. That's where the fundamentalist, that's why fundamentalism has never been able to produce meaningful church history is because that appreciation of someone who looks differently, acts differently, thinks differently, doesn't fit with a, a, a central aspect of fundamentalist thought. And so you have to struggle with that, and you have to uh, think through it with the ramifications that are, without then becoming emergent church. Nobody knows anything. I'll believe anything. Throw the baby out with the bathwater type of thing. Balance. Oh, goodness. Very, very important to be able to do that. Uh, I have a couple of these things over in my office. I should use them much more than I do. I should just grab one and take it home today, so I will. But there are these wobble boards. Um, sometimes it's just one round, sometimes two. But it's meant to help um, your stabilizer muscles in your, in your legs, uh, your, your ankles and things like that. And, of course, your, your mind, too. Uh, but to use muscles you don't really don't use so you don't get injured as easily. 
Well, this whole study has been sort of a wobble board for people to get them to use some muscles they otherwise wouldn't normally be using so as to hopefully avoid injury. And that's why we do stuff like this. That's why, some, that's why we get into stuff on this program that almost nobody else gets into. Not because I'm smart than anybody else. I'm just dumb enough to go ahead and do it because I really am convinced that it's important stuff. And so we've done textual critis, critical stuff and all sorts of stuff going in-depth on things that most people would say, you're just turning too many people off. It's just, it's just too specialized. They're not going to go in the weeds with you. Well, over decades, we've demonstrated that when we're going into the weeds, there's a reason for going into the weeds. And we've, and there's a, at least enough people to keep us going uh, that think it's important enough to tromp into those weeds and learn those things themselves. So I listen to poor Leighton sitting there going, he never uses unbiased sources. And I'm just sitting here going, Oh, yeah, every single one. Every source is a biased source. So how many thousands of words of Augustine have I read over the past number of weeks? That's, that, that's a biased source? Let, let me tell you who's biased. Ken Wilson was biased in his research, and I've documented it, and I'm continuing to document it. Okay? That, there, there, if you want bias, Leighton, there's your bias. But what you just said is just fantastically untrue. And I don't think you even understand that it's fantastically untrue. That's what concerns me, Leighton. It sounds to me like you actually believe this. But you don't seem to understand the difference between secondary sources and what you're doing in reading definitions about semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism. And man, are you sensitive about that. Oh, goodness. So sensitive, you can't even hear when you say Pelagian things. All you can do is just start seeing red and get angry. When you tell people that mankind in and of himself is capable, apart from the supernatural operation of grace, in that person's mind and soul, not in the provision of a gospel message, which is what you say, but in that person's mind and soul to allow them to believe or not believe, you don't seem to understand that that's where you've gone. You've made this stuff up in your mind. That, that, no, that's not what I'm saying, because I'm, I'm saying that grace was necessary, and grace was necessary to give us the gospel. But grace isn't necessary for the fallen son or daughter of Adam to have the ability to repent and believe in that gospel. The gospel is the grace for you, right? That's what you've said. Maybe you're changing. Maybe, maybe you've had people push back, and I don't know, but that's what you've said in the past. That's what you said in the past. Anyway, I think you really believe this, and it's, it's frightening, because what I just played just does not make a lick of sense, and it's just simply untrue, and anyone who has listened to even half of what I've said knows that it's not true. I've been sitting here citing secondary biased Calvinistic sources against Ken Wilson. When? Where? What have I done? I've actually been going to the original sources, either things he cited or in the case of the patristic materials, or 
how was my citation of Philippians 129 biased? <laughs> how, how when I put the Greek on the screen? Uh, is my citation of Dan Wallace on the Greek grammar and syntax, is that somehow biased as well? I mean, what are you listening to? It, it almost sounds like you're filtering such things to give yourself a defense because you've hitched your star to a, you've hitched your wagon to a star that's not going to go anywhere. And, and that's a problem. Were you? Oh, no, I was. No, not that one. That one. There we go. All right. Uh, I was just going to say, you, you know, you, the, the, the book that's on the top of the pile there. So I'm, I'm sorry. I was drinking the what? Yes, the book that's on the top of the pile. Grab yes. that. Hold mm-hmm. it up. Yes. So let's, let's break this down for just a second here. Yes. So uh, Ken Wilson takes that book. And what he does with it isn't biased. But you simply read what the guy actually wrote. And that's biased. And that's biased. Mm -hmm. But Ken Wilson isn't biased. And Leighton isn't biased. There is a, for lack of a better word, a errant presupposition going on here. Just a bit. Just a bit. But I will tell you this. For me, and I've, what, has it been 30, I don't even want to count, 33 years now? Yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, I just remember you walking up with that crazed looking. Yeah, me. let's not let go there. Um, <laughs> it's page seventy nine, by the way, for those of you who are looking. For of that. all these years, I, I've known about your church history, lessons, teachings, all that, but I've never seen you go this in depth. Right. And I can tell you, I'm getting a lot out of it. I'm getting. I never knew about some of these bizarreties. Of Man- Manichaeism that yeah. we won't repeat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, well, I did have lunch recently. There so, are uh, things that I, I think they are very illuminating. And so illuminating. If, <laughs> that's funny. If Dr. Wilson has done us any favors, it's oh, that. No, definitely. He has, he has caused us to go in and start unpacking this stuff and establish an apologetic. Yep. yep. So there is that. That's well, I'm trying. You know, I, I am one who likes to try to find the uh, the, the silver, the quote unquote silver linings. Yeah. You know, um, I'm looking at the situation with uh, with the uh, the Great Panic of 2020, and I'm going. Um, I'll get back to Wilson here, but the CDC guidelines for children returning to school. Uh, yes, the the homeschoolers takeover of the government. The homeschoolers takeover yes. of the education department. Yeah. Um, because they're literally saying that any child over two is supposed to wear a face mask all day. Can you imagine what five, six, and seven-year-olds are going to be with face masks? Especially if they have elastic in them. I wonder how far <laughs> you can shoot a face mask. I really do. Can you, can you just... I, oh. I'm, I'm watching... I'm the boys. I'm just watching the little boys. What they're going to do with these face masks. All I can tell you is if it were me when I was that age, how filthy dirty... Well, not that just thing oh, would of course. Come back. Are you every single day? It would be a petri dish of bacteria. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're talking about disease like anything here, but there there would be fun stuff too. Yeah, I mean, because I I still remember the day in, I think it was, oh, what grade was that? Was that second grade? Is that Mrs. Anderson's? Might have been Mrs. Anderson. Anyways, I remember my friend Bobby was across, and he was taking one of those achievement test things. You know, we fill in the bubbles. Remember those? Mm-hmm. Remember those back in the day? We thought they were so advanced. Because you could, they could be ju- they could be graded by a machine. Ooh, yeah. Ah. Um, but you had to fill in the bubbles just right. If you didn't fill in the bubbles, had to have a what 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 kind of pe- pencil did you have to have? Number two, I find. Number two. That's yes. right. Because if anything else, it, it couldn't read it. And yeah. 
So I just remember Mrs. Anderson was was looking at something else, and I managed to take a rubber band, and I fired because the the room was in a in a this type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I'm over here, he's over here, and I fired that rubber band across the center, and he's sitting there, and I I made a ringer on his <laughs> on his on his pencil from the other side of the room. I did this, okay. So if I did like, that, uh, <laughs> if I did that, can you imagine what they're going to be doing in face masks? Well, I was the kind of kid that would uh, find horny toads and put them in his pocket. Oh, sure. Why so, not? So, I mean, you talk about all kinds you of... You could put French fries, because they're not going to get, they're not even going to be able, they're going to have to have boxed lunches. Yeah. There's going to be people bringing stuff, French fries in, I mean, it. these people coming up with this stuff... Obviously, don't have kids. That's the problem. Either that, or they're so old they've forgotten what it was like to be a kid yeah. or to have kids. One of the two. And it's just like, no, that's not going to happen. And so I'm looking at the silver lining, and that is, if I was a parent looking at these guidelines as to what school is going to be like for these these kids, mm. I'm going. You know that homeschool wasn't that bad. Yep. Um, yeah, let's. I'm really going to be really really interested when fall comes. Uh, or really, fall twenty twenty one. That's where it really. Yeah. That's where it, you really find out, depending on what happens between now and then. Um, how big is the homeschooling u- movement going to be, and how powerful is the NEA to try to get the government to clamp down on it? Yeah, and how many people are going to be moving out of the state that bans it? Oh no, well, not only that, but my fear is, depending on who wins in November, yeah. what's been my what's been my prediction for years. As soon as the leftists yeah. have the presidency, the Senate, down. and the House, homeschooling's done. Homeschooling, well, homeschooling's a, done. a lot of the things that what we're doing right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, homeschooling especially. Homeschooling yeah, especially. Absolutely. Just done. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, what does that have to do with uh, Ken Wilson? Not much, other than I do look for the silver lining, and the silver lining, the positive in this situation, has been that we have had more and more people. Um, recognizing how important it is to to know about our history, to know because this is how we get approached f- from many different angles, and we don't know how to respond to it, and we struggle to respond to it. There's there's no there's no two ways about it. So, um, so Leighton, I, I didn't like I said I didn't watch the rest of it, and um, and maybe you don't watch what I'm doing about Wilson either. That's fine. I. That that's okay, um, but the reality is that I have not been using "quote unquote" biased sources. That every single source that I've been using is biased, because my primary sources have been the original writings in their original languages and Wilson's book interview with you, his dissertation, and his sources. So no one really understands what in the world you were just saying. They really, really, really do not. Um, okay. Uh, with that, uh, let me see what I have here. I did get a little chance to do a little bit more reading. Uh, I did not have the opportunity of expanding on the Romans. Uh, I'm far, sorry, the first Timothy 2, uh, 4 section uh, before we wrap these things up. Um, I'm not sure that I want to uh, dive into these uh, 
right before the weekend. We we got the calls in. So I did uh, did Chris's uh, article uh, post uh, today. Let me take a. Um, we're looking at something here. A and O. And uh, is this the seventh one uh, we're putting up here? So I know the next one is uh, on the Council of Carthage. No, the last one is still on uh, what if we write the stars. Let me just make a real quick comment about that, and we'll we'll wrap uh, wrap things up. I made a comment, I think, in response to uh, a, a comment in response to Rich, I think, yesterday. It may have been earlier in the week. There, A lot of people, when they start reading historical sources, are surprised by the prevalence of astrological material in ancient writing, whether Christian or non-Christian. It is everywhere. And you will find many Christians who buy into various elements of astro- of what we would call today astrology. Initially, there really wasn't any difference between what we call astronomy and astrology. They're pretty much the same thing. And so if you, for example, once, once you start studying some astronomy, everybody's always like, Hey James, what's that? You know, and they, you know, some bright spot in the sky. They want to automatically assume you're going to know what it is. And if you do happen to go, well, that happens to be Jupiter. They're like, ooh, okay. Well, think about it for just a second. It, it this is this is an, this is a place where again, you have to learn to lay aside your modern perspective and try to realize what it was like literally only a number of generations ago. Um, we have not had telescopes. We, we started getting telescopes. We, we've had telescopes for less than 500 years. And so we've also only had major, major cities for a certain period of time. And that means almost, almost for the entire history of humankind, the night sky was dark. Those of you who live in major cities today and have never lived anyplace else, you're the weirdos. You look up at the sky and all you see is a glowing gray mass at night with a moon in it once in a while. And once in a while you might see a bright dot, but you have no idea what in the world it is. That's extremely unusual. Almost Anyone during the history of humankind walking outside at night would be stunned by the literally billions of stars out there, but they didn't know there were billions of stars out there. Uh, I, I read one study recently that said there's, there's really only a, just under 10,000 visibly identifiable stars to the human eye. Um, but they would see all these stars and they could not, it was simply a part of human belief and thought to think 
that those stars that pass so regularly over our, our heads, so much so that you could tell time with them. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the people on, on the seas knew the heavens like the back of their hand. That's how they could get where they were going. They developed um, mechanisms long before there was a computer uh, to allow them to navigate the seas by the use of the stars. But then they also discovered these couple of weirdos up there that don't go the same direction all the time. They'll go one direction, and then they'll turn around and go the other direction, and then another one will go back them, and then chase that one back that direction. And so they, they, these things, the, the Greek term for wandering is planao. They planaoed, so they became planets. Um, and they were really special because they were brighter. Well, some of them were. Most of them were brighter than almost any of the stars that had regular motions. These had irregular motions. And so you could come up with all sorts of theories as to why they had irregular motions. And it was all of mankind's religions have been influenced by people looking up there and going, look at all that stuff. That, this must have a, an influence upon my life. And so you can find reformers that believed that, um, well, give me an example. Uh, the Great Mortality, uh, 13, uh, 1347 to 1351. Over half of Europe dies. Well, about half of Europe dies. In some cities, up to 70, 75% of everybody dies. That, you want a pandemic? That was a pandemic, okay? That's one where you shut everything down and run. Uh, but there really isn't almost any place to run. Um, no question about it. But almost everyone, including everyone in the church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, the bishops, cardinals, whole nine yards, the best scientific explanation had to do with the conjunction of planets. That planets had gotten close to one another, and this released like a miasma uh, into the atmosphere that caused all these things. These caused these things to happen. And in, in scientific writings, where you'd have a scientist observing, before they died, because <laughs> a lot of them did die, but observing how the, the disease progressed and the growth of the bulbs on the body and, and the, the, the speed with which a person would die. And, and, and they're, they're making what we would call scientific observations. And then right in the middle of it, they'll go, and I observed this during the conjunction of Mercury and Venus, which may have had something to do with the color of the person's skin. And you're just going, what? <laughs> but that's until recent period, the recent period of time, that was very, very, very much a part of everyone's worldview and their understanding of things. And so we properly differentiate between astronomy and astrology. The, what also has come from that is that if you're going to be involved in astronomy, you have to do it as a secular person. See why? 
because the the distinction needed to be made. But then you put that in a secular context, and then it follows that you you can't um, see the purposes of God in how he has created things. So, uh, yesterday, yesterday morning, I, I ran out to the East Valley, and I took my solar scope. I have a hydrogen alpha solar scope. Um, and I set it up in the backyard at my daughter's house, and uh, and the grandkids came out, and... Uh, we had some friends over, and we had a little solar party. And it was really, really neat because we got really clear views. Uh, we were able to see some of the plasma loops on the, on the disk uh, and, and verify that with today's current uh, image from, from stuff. I talked a little bit about this yesterday. That, okay, you couldn't have hydrogen alpha solar scopes back then. But doing something like that would have been considered astrology only a few hundred years ago. And there would have been just an automatic idea that that would have some type of an influence upon you. Well, it does. One of the things I told my kids about was, my grandkids about, was how that fusion of hydrogen into helium way out there is what's striking the leaves the plant back there in the backyard and chlorophyll and the production of plant matter, which then gets eaten by animals uh, who then you eat when we go to McDonald's and have a cheeseburger. And there is that connection. There, there, but it's a understandable connection and not a magical connection. It's not a kind of connection that you know determines the, your fate by the stars and all the rest of this kind of stuff. So when you when you read church history, you will encounter discussions of constellations and and people who are more or less influenced uh, by issues related to what they would what was for them science. And remember, it was settled science at the time of the Great Plague that certain things would help you to avoid the infection, which we know today had absolutely nothing. But that was settled science. Well, we know so much more now. I posted on um, Twitter and Facebook. Um, did you see that um, 60 Minutes yeah. thing? Wasn't that amazing? Yeah. From, from 1976. 19, I, I got hold of my dad, uh, and I'm like, do you remember this? Well, I don't remember. I don't because '76. I remember. I remember the centen- the bicentennial celebrations and all that kind of stuff. I don't remember any of that at all. You do, okay? I didn't remember any of that. Um, we certainly didn't get any inoculations or anything. Um, but the government, the CDC in Atlanta, yeah, same CDC as today, was pushing this vaccine for the H1N1 swine flu in 1976. And they were predicting major problems. Well, A, it didn't happen. And B, hundreds of people died from the inoculations. And hundreds of others, maybe even thousands of others, were physically uh, extremely damaged, injured uh, by this, uh, this inoculation that the government 
government spending money advertising, and nowhere did it say flatten the curve, but it was pretty much the same stuff. It was the exact same stuff. And it's like, oh, that was only 45 years ago. Oh, oh, okay. We're what goes around comes around. Here we are again. Um, so, yeah, that's 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 more much more recent history uh, at, at that point. But I, it just reminded me going, uh, if if we could have had TV coverage from 500 years ago, we'd we'd sit there going, really, wow, that's. That's pretty amazing stuff, really is. So, anyways, sorry to uh, wander off on that there, but it's Friday, um, the technical beginning of the summer. Uh, it's been beautiful here in Phoenix past couple of days, but by a week from today, it's supposed to get right near 110 degrees. So, yep, beginning of the summer uh, for uh, for us, um, and by the middle of July, 110 will be nice. Uh, we'll be wishing that it was only uh, 110. Um, that that will be our our that's our lot in life. Uh, but from what I understand, almost no virus can survive out in the sun uh, here in uh, here in Phoenix for any period of time at all. So there is there is that advantage to that. It's pretty much fried instantly, uh, which is why you have to bathe in sunscreen because living cells get fried pretty instantly too. Uh, that's why you Easterners come out here, make the mistake coming out in July, and you go out for 10 minutes without sunscreen on, and then you wonder why you got a sunburn in Phoenix. It's like, how does anybody live on the surface of the sun? Well, that's you, you get used to it over time. You really do. Anyways, thanks for listening to the program today. I don't know what the weekend's going to bring, and I don't know what next week's going to be about, but we'll be ready for it, and uh, hope you join us then. Thanks for watching. God bless.